you can be uh, taking your copy of God's Word and turning once again to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, right where we were last week. As I told you, uh, these two weeks are a bit unusual where we take time to explore a few things from the text that we might not do in a normal exposition of the text. But I do have a question for you as you're turning there. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, I have a question. Is, as you look down at the pages of your Bible, are any of your Bibles in Latin? None? Well, there's a reason for that. And I want to introduce you to the man who's the reason for that this morning. His name is William Tyndale. As you continue to turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, I want you to go back with me in history. Go back with me to August of 1536, and you will see a man standing on trial. And his name was William Tyndale. And you need to hear the controversial things that he was charged of. And let's see if you would be found guilty right along with William Tyndale. Tyndale was charged with believing that justification is by faith alone that our works do not save us, but that we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. He also was charged with believing that human traditions cannot bind the conscience, that we must obey God's Word and not be bound by human tradition. Well, he was also charged with believing that the human will is bound by sin, that all of humanity are born sinners. So far, how you doing? Are you going to be found guilty along with Tyndale? He also was charged with believing that there is no purgatory, that this was completely made up by the Roman Catholic Church, and that it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that comes the judgment, that there is no such doctrine as purgatory. Furthermore, he was accused of teaching and believing that uh, the prayers should not be offered to Mary, uh, the mother of our Lord, or prayers should not be offered to the saints uh, because they cannot hear us and they are not praying for us. Instead, our prayers should be offered to Christ. Well, are you guilty along with William Tyndale? These are the things that he was charged with, but i got to be honest. There was one really big thing that, that got him in trouble and I hate to tell you, but you're all accomplices to his crime because as you look down in your lap, what you are holding is what got William Tyndale put to death. It's the English Bible. We'll think more on that in just a moment. As we read last week, let us once again read from 2 Peter chapter 1. If you're willing and able, would you stand for the reading of God's Word? 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. Peter writes, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with Him on the holy mountain." And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit." Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. 
And may the Lord add His blessing to the reading of His Word. You may be seated. As we alluded to downstairs in uh, Sunday school this morning, we uh, today celebrate, along with thousands of Christians around the world, we celebrate Reformation Sunday. Now, I know for a lot of you, you're still thinking, I'm not quite sure what that is, Pastor, but that's, that's okay. We do understand as American citizens that there are people who have gone before us, who have given their lives to, to make the country what it is today, and we know that we must learn their story, we must hear their stories and learn from them. We get it when it comes to American history, but it's also true with church history. There are people who have gone before us in the life of the church, and we have benefited. We are the beneficiaries of all of their sacrifices and all that they have done, but so often we are ignorant of our history. We don't know what the Lord has done throughout His church over these last 2,000 years. Uh, One of my favorite uh, Baptist historians is a man named Timothy George. And he will always start his, his semesters teaching history, church history, by saying, it's my job to teach you that there's somebody between Jesus and your grandmother and who that is matters. All right? Do you understand the point that he's making there? For most of us, we don't know a whole lot about our history beyond our grandparents. If you may know your great-grandparents, but other than that, most of us don't know a ton about our history, but we know that we came from somewhere. And so he's saying that uh, we know that there are people who came before us, uh, but usually the most godly person we know were our grandparents, and we just know there might have been some people before them, and then you get all the way back to Jesus, all right? So that's, that's what he's saying, is that the point is to learn that there are people who have gone before us. There's lots of ways you could think about church history. You could explain it through particular people, through the lives of of famous Christians throughout the ages. Or you could look at the the history of the church in a particular country. You could say this is the history of the church in Egypt or the history of the church in England or in Scotland, and you could tell the story of what God has done uh, throughout history. But you also could look at the doctrine, the things that have been taught, and you understand that there's two sides to that coin. There's the history of the right things that have been taught, but there's also the history of the heresies that have been taught, the false teachings that have peppered church history ever since uh, the days of Christ. Well, when we come to the day of Peter, and this second letter this morning, Second Peter, he is writing in the days of a heresy. He's dealing with people who doubt the return of Christ, people who say that Jesus will not return. Now, you understand that we still have lots of fun debates as Christians today working out the details. Because it hasn't happened yet, there are things we are not sure about. We know Christ will return. We have strong opinions about how that's going to work out, but we understand there's some things we can't be 100% certain about because He has not yet returned. But we all must agree that Jesus will return in bodily form. For that much to be true, we, we must confess those things to be Christians, but we can wonder about the details. That's the, the false teaching that Peter is dealing with in his day. There are people who are saying, Jesus is not coming back. You're just uh, peddling in myths and in fables. But that uh, false teaching, that heresy, quickly led to others throughout church history. You look at the early days of Christians, and they were dealing with people who taught that Jesus wasn't truly God. Or they were dealing with people who said that Jesus was not truly human. They dealt with false teachings about the Holy Spirit and false teachings about the Trinity. Well, as you move throughout history, you, we come up to the day I want us to think about this morning, even as we consider Second Peter, I want us to consider the life of William Tyndale. 
And when you come to his life in the 1500s, what was the spiritual state of England, his homeland, and our homeland, if you go back far enough for most of us? Well, here's how uh, one writer described it. He said, as Tyndale entered the world scene, England lay covered under a dark night of spiritual darkness. The church in England remained shrouded in the midnight of spiritual ignorance. The knowledge of the scriptures had been all but extinguished in the land. What a sad spiritual condition of our forefathers in England about 500 years ago. It's been said that there were 20,000 priests at that time in England, but if you put all 20,000 of them together, they couldn't take the Latin Lord's Prayer and give it to the people in English. That's how ignorant even the priests were. They didn't know God's Word. Well, there's a reason that there was such a famine for the Word of God in the land of England during those days. For a thousand years, the only Bible that most Christians had had was in Latin. And that's why I asked you this morning, is your Bible still in Latin? Because the problem that you would have this morning is the same problem they had then. Most of the people couldn't read Latin. And so if the only access you have to God is in a language you can't understand, then you are in big trouble. But for a thousand years, the church had only had what's called the Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Bible. And the problem with that, not only could they not understand it, but the problem was also that it wasn't a very good translation. If you go to the Latin Vulgate and you start reading it, even in English, you understand that there are some things taught there that are not taught in the Bible. And that's the problem. That's where a lot of the the doctrines that we would disagree with the Roman Catholic Church, they came from their bad interpretation and their bad translation of the Latin Vulgate. Let me give you one example that you're probably somewhat familiar with. It's this idea of penance, of penance. Even if you didn't know that word, you've seen it done. You've seen it portrayed on TV shows. But penance is one of the root causes of the Reformation. It's one of the reasons why Martin Luther nailed up those 95 theses saying, hey, I don't understand what you Catholic priests are talking about. Because they had this doctrine of penance that said, if you sin, when you sin, you must go to the priest and you must confess your sins to the priest. That's not the end of the story. The priest must absolve you. He must announce the forgiveness upon you. And if the priest did not absolve you, then your sins were not forgiven and you were still standing condemned before the Lord. But even then, that's not the end of the story. You must confess your sins to the priest. The priest must absolve you. But then you must go and do works of satisfaction. These are the the Hail Marys, the prayers, the acts of good work that a, a Catholic must do in order, from their understanding, to be in right standing with God. All of that comes from a bad interpretation of a bad translation of the Bible, the Latin Vulgate. Well, that's what they were all dealing with. So the people didn't have access to God's Word. And also at the same time, it had become illegal to even translate the Bible. It was considered a high crime that you could be burned at the stake if you translated the Bible into English. Can you imagine that? In 1519, there were seven Christians who were burned at the stake for teaching their children the Lord's Prayer in English. That's the spiritual condition of England at this time. And William Tyndale, as he's looking around, he's wondering, what can I do for my people? Just like Paul, and you see in Romans 9, 10, and 11, how he's heartbroken for his people, the Jews. William Tyndale, he's looking at England, and he's heartbroken for his people. He says, the only thing that I can do is get them the copy of God's Word in English. They must be able to read the Scriptures in their own language. 
Listen, in Tyndale's own words, he says, it was impossible to establish the lay people in any truth except the Scripture was laid before their eyes in their mother tongue. Well, from what I've told you so far, you can probably imagine people weren't very excited when, or the, the church, the Catholics were not very excited when Tyndale tried to get permission to translate the Bible into English. There's a famous story of Tyndale having a meal with a priest, and they were debating some issue of theology. And the priest asserted, he said, we would be better without God's law than the Pope's law. So this priest says, if we had to choose, do we have God's word or the Pope's words? He said, we better stick with the Pope's words. And William Tyndale was outraged. He says, I defy the Pope and all of his laws. And then he declared, if God would spare me life... It will be here in this nation of England, there will come a day that even the plowboy knows more of God's Word than you priest know God's Word. William Tyndale was throwing down the gauntlet. He said, if the Lord gives me life, I will make sure that English-speaking people have a copy of the Bible in their own language. You see, William Tyndale knew that the answer to all of the false teachings, to all the heresy, all the ignorance, all the biblical illiteracy of his day was the Word of God. And when you look at Peter dealing with this false teaching in his day, what does Peter say the solution is? The Word of God. Turn with me again. Look at your Bible. Keep it open. Second Peter chapter 1. Peter says in verse 16, "...we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ." Peter says, "...we made known to you, we preach to you clearly that Jesus Christ will return." He will come, He will descend just as He ascended into the heavens in like manner. He will return just as He promised. He says, this is the clear teaching of our Lord. He says, we do not follow cleverly devised myths. Well, that's what Christians were being accused of in that day. These false teachers in Peter's day were saying, you Christians, you believe in the return of Jesus Christ? You're just a bunch of idiots. That's not true. There's no basis in this reality. You're just all believing fantasy. Those stories about Jesus are no different than the myths about Zeus and Jupiter and Poseidon and Venus and all of the false gods, the myths of Peter's day. You've heard me read earlier that Paul warned Titus about these Jewish myths. And Paul also warned Timothy to stay away from myths and endless genealogies. You see, the culture was full of these cleverly devised myths. And this was the charge against the people of Christ in Peter's day, that it's all just a myth. But you understand, we still face those accusations today. People accuse us of being foolish and that uh, our, we have an irrational faith, that we're all just believing a bunch of myths. That's why we took time last week looking at this passage and really explaining the last two verses about the inspiration of the Bible how God perfectly provided His Word in a trustworthy manner. He moved men of God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We have an inspired, trustworthy Word. We have a reasonable, rational faith. If you weren't able to be with us last week, I would encourage you to go online and listen to the sermon from last week. Don't let anybody accuse you of saying that we Christians have a foolish faith, that we're just believing cleverly devised myths. Well, Peter is throwing down the gauntlet saying, this is not what we believe. We did not follow cleverly devised myths. He says, here's what it's not. It's not myths. Instead, here's what it is. He says, we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. 
Peter says, I'm an eyewitness. Now, you don't have to be a lawyer to understand that an eyewitness testimony is pretty powerful testimony. That's what you're longing for. If you're trying to prove something, you want an eyewitness. Peter says we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. And verses 17 and 18 are clearly referring to an episode called the Transfiguration. The Transfiguration. You can read about that in Matthew 17 and Mark 9 and Luke 9, where we're told that Jesus took not all twelve, but three of His disciples, Peter, James, and John. And He takes them up on a mountain. While they're up there on the mountain, Jesus' appearance changes right before their very eyes. Do you remember the story? His clothes go from just looking normal to looking dazzling white. Mark said that it was whiter than any, uh, any cleaner, any launderer on earth could clean them. And Jesus' appearance looks different. He's dazzling in His radiance. Peter says, we saw all of these things, but then, but lo and behold, they also saw that they were not alone. Moses and Elijah appeared right there on the Mount of Transfiguration along with them. And as we've studied that text before, we understand that Moses and Elijah, they come and they're discussing with Jesus Christ his exodus, his upcoming departure, the fact that he was going to be crucified in Jerusalem, he would be buried in a borrowed tomb, raised on the third day, and ascend into the heavens, that he would be our perfect substitution, his sacrifice there on the cross. Moses and Elijah are talking about this with, uh, with Jesus. But then it gets even better. A voice comes from heaven. The voice of God Himself speaks from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And God the Father says, Listen to Him. Listen to Jesus Christ the Son. Well, Peter's making reference to all of this. This we call the transfiguration. And Peter says, We saw His glory. We, uh, we saw His changed appearance. You see that there uh, in verse uh, 17 and 18. We saw His glory. We saw His honor because we heard the voice of God the Father. We heard the voice of the majestic glory. The glory of the Father is shared with the Son because Jesus Christ is God. The Father is pleased with the Son. We hear that in the voice from heaven. Peter saw. Peter heard. Peter experienced all of this. And Peter knows that this glimpse of the glory of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration is just a foreshadowing. It's a down payment of what we will see when Christ returns again in power and glory. And so for all these scoffers who are saying, Christ isn't coming again, you foolish Christians for believing these myths, he says, no, I saw it with my own eyes. He says, this isn't a myth. I know what I saw. But Peter doesn't end there. He doesn't just say, take my word for it. He actually says, take God's word for it. Notice carefully what we're seeing here in the text. You see, Peter isn't telling us that we, as Christians today, should look for these mountaintop experiences. He isn't telling us to listen for a voice from heaven. He's telling us to look at the more sure word, the word more fully confirmed. Did you notice that Peter didn't actually give us the details about the transfiguration? I gave you the details about the transfiguration. Peter assumes that we know what he's talking about. And where did I get those details from? Not from a voice from heaven, but from reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke. These Gospels, at least one if not multiple of them, had already been written by the time Peter composes this letter. And Peter trusts 
that the Christians who are reading this letter have already read the gospel and they've heard the story of the transfiguration. You understand the difference? Peter doesn't give the details. He assumes that they've read God's word, that they know they can trust the more sure word because the details are given to them in scriptures. Now, to be clear, Peter was there. Peter was an eyewitness, but Peter isn't appealing to his experience as an authority. He's telling us to trust the more certain word. As strange as it may sound, if Peter were standing here today and you wanted to hear about the transfiguration from Peter, Peter would say, read Matthew, read Mark, read Luke, because these are the word more fully confirmed. This is the prophecy that was not produced by will of man, but by men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the trustworthy word of God. Now, some of you are sharp, and you remember that here when Peter's writing, they only had the Old Testament. The New Testament was not complete at that point, right? So you may be wondering, does this only apply to the Old Testament? Can we really assume that everything, Genesis through Revelation, is the trustworthy Word of God? Well, keep your Bible open in 2 Peter and go over to chapter 3. Look with me. It won't be on the screen, so keep your Bible open. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Peter writes, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. What are they supposed to remember? Verse 2, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets, that's the Old Testament, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. That's the New Testament. Everything that Jesus, our Lord and Savior, has said, everything that Christ has given us through the apostles, that's the New Testament. So everything, both old and new, this is the trustworthy, sufficient Word of God. But it gets even better than that. Keep looking in chapter 3. Go down with me here to verses, uh, let's see, verse, start in verse 15. Peter continues and he says, "...and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, verse 16, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters." So Peter is looking at the writings of Paul. This is all going on in real time. And he says, these are the words of God. Paul has given you inspired words of God. Now, it gets even better. We won't go into it, but Peter also says that Paul's writings can be hard to understand. And I find that to be quite humorous. Sometimes you wonder uh, if there's any humor in the Bible. But Peter looks at Paul and says, Paul, it's kind of hard to understand some of the things you say when Peter is the one who gave us the hardest passage in all the Bible in 1 Peter chapter 3 about the spirits in prison. My goodness, if you're not sure the meaning of that, be sure to ask Pastor Laramie after the service is over, okay? All right, so Peter is recognizing that all of God's Word from beginning to end, Genesis to Revelation, this is a certain, complete, trustworthy Word. But let's be honest, we still crave the experience. We still wish we could have been with Peter. Don't you wish you could have seen what Peter saw? Don't you wish you could have heard what Peter heard? We have been conditioned in our present-day Christianity to seek the supernatural experience. And when we do that, we're not actually relying on the trustworthy Word of God. We don't actually take Jesus at His Word. 
So many of us want to hear a voice from heaven. We say, if only I could hear. I know the Bible says this, but, but I'm not quite sure. And if I could just hear God speak from heaven, then I would have complete confidence in His Word. But what more can He say than to you He has said? He's already spoken through His Word. We're still listening for that still, small voice. We're, we're looking for that intuition, that holy hunch. But God tells us that we have a more certain word, a more sure word, a more trustworthy word that's even more reliable than our own experiences. Why would you want a less trustworthy experience when you could have the more trustworthy word? But what do we say about those today who tell us that they have heard God speak from heaven. They say, I've got a fresh word from the Lord. How can we know what they're saying? Whether or not it's true. How can we know that their dreams weren't caused by the Mexican food that they ate late last night? How are we not sure that that gut feeling they have is not just indigestion? You understand that when we set aside the Word of God and we're only going off of our feelings and our experiences, we're at the mercy of whoever's talking or we can trust the more certain word. Brothers and sisters, this isn't just some hypothetical uh, idea that I read about in a seminary textbook, and I think it's important for me to share with you. This is real-life Christianity. I've dealt with this multiple times in ministry where people, even if they won't say it quite like this, what they say is, Pastor, I really don't care what the Bible has to say. I know you want to help me understand the Scriptures, but I really don't care. Here's what I know. I know, based on my feelings, that this is what I'm supposed to do, and I don't care what the Bible has to say. It happens all the time. Christians rely on those uh, gut feelings, those intuitions, those hunches, and they won't trust the sufficient Word of God. Now, we've all had hunches. We've all had intuitions that turned out to be right. And so sometimes we think, well, that must be from God. But what about the times when the intuitions and the hunches are wrong? Do we blame God for those things then? No. If we're right, we praise the Lord and we say, thank you, Lord, for leading me. But ultimately, we're searching for His will through His Word. We're not trusting in the intuitions and the hunches. It's often not until after something has happened, many years later, that we can look back and we can see, this is how God was leading me. This is how God was guiding me. Ultimately, we're not looking for that special, still voice, that small voice from heaven. We're not looking for the gut feelings. We're trusting God's Word. Well, if we have a more sure word, how did we get it in English? Let me tell you a little more about William Tyndale. God had prepared this man. He had been trained. He knew multiple languages, and I don't mean just one or two, more like seven or eight different languages before he started preparing to translate the New Testament from the Greek, the Old Testament from the Hebrew. He did all of the studying because he knew that the people needed to be able to hold the Bible in their hands and to read it for themselves. But in order for him to translate the Bible into English, that meant he was making himself an enemy of the state that he was going to be considered a heretic, that he would go against the church of Rome, and that he would have to flee his homeland in order to do this work for you and for me. And so he did. He fled from England. He, uh, for the last 12 years of his life, he was never back home 
in his own homeland. He was fleeing from country to country as he translated the Bible. Now, of course, this took time, but I'm giving you the short version. So you need to know that he was first able to translate the New Testament, and he released uh, the New Testament in English, and it sold uh, as quick as it was made available. It was smuggled into the country uh, in hay bales on ships, and then as farmers got it, they began passing them around. Everybody wanted a copy of God's Word. And through time, he he didn't just sit back on his laurels and said, I've done it once. He kept refining it. He kept double-checking. He kept uh, making corrections and trying to make his translation even stronger. So eventually, he wound up adding cross-references. He wound up adding a few study notes. And so William Tyndale gave us our first study Bible. He added a glossary at the end of his Old Testament work, which was essentially the first English dictionary. A real dictionary would not exist for another 200 years, but Tyndale gave us one, a glossary in his Hebrew Old Testament. In the process, more than any one person, William Tyndale shaped the modern English language. The words we say, the phrases we use, we owe a a gratitude of thanks to this man. Less than 100 years later, 40 trained scholars would come together to produce the King James Bible that some of you are holding this morning. And when these scholars, 40 of them, got done producing the New Testament, 84% of it was exactly identical to the work of William Tyndale. They could not improve on the work of this one man. In his Old Testament work, he began uh, trying to take these Hebrew ideas, give them to us in English, and he gave us words that we're still using today. Words like Passover and scapegoat and the mercy seat and Jehovah. We owe these translations to William Tyndale. These important truths, we express them with these familiar words because of his work. He gave us phrases like an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's very memorable. That stuck out in the minds of Christians for 400 plus years ever since William Tyndale gave it to us. What about that that blessing in uh, numbers that Aaron gives to the people? Uh, If I tried to pronounce it to you in Hebrew, uh, I would embarrass myself and you would all look at me crazily. But here's how William Tyndale gave it to us. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be merciful to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Do you hear how similar that is? It's almost identical to what we have even today. King James, ESV, different translations. We all rely on the work of this man, William Tyndale. He gave us phrases that have crossed over into the English language, just regular vocabulary, not even the Bible, like gave up the ghost and signs of the times and fight the good fight and twinkling of an eye. All of these phrases are memorable because of the translation of William Tyndale. We all owe him a debt of gratitude. But of course, as you understand from what I've already told you, he faced great opposition. Some Catholics thought, well, we'll buy up all of his English Bibles so that nobody else can buy them. But in the providence of God, this just meant that William Tyndale had more resources to be able to produce more copies of the Bible, and the Word of God went forth. Once when he was sailing up the river from Belgium uh, to Germany, the ship wrecked, and all of his work on the Old Testament was lost. He had to start over from scratch. For some of us, we would say, okay, Lord, you must be closing this door. I I don't think you want me to do this anymore. But William Tyndale knew that God was calling him to translate the Bible into English. And so he started all over again. He was labeled a heretic by the church of his day. And the leading scholar, a man named Sir Thomas More, wrote not one, but six books opposing William Tyndale. 
In those books, let me tell you the, some of the things that he was called. Maybe you've had a bad day and somebody's called you a bad name. Here's what they said about Tyndale. They called him the captain of English heretics. They said he's a hell hound in the kennel of the devil. He's a new Judas. He's worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. If you're ever having a bad day, just remember it hasn't gotten that bad that somebody's calling you worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. The king at that time in England was Henry VIII, and he wanted to stop Tyndale's work, and so he sent an ambassador. He sent someone to Tyndale to find him. They tried many times to find him, to make this offer to him and wherever they could locate him in various countries. And they said, listen, if you'll just stop translating the Bible, come back to England. We'll give you a salary for the rest of your life. You'll be comfortable. And Tyndale said on one condition, he said, I'll stop the work. But the Bible must be given to the people in the language they can understand. O oh, king, if you will give English copies of the Bible to the people of England, I'll stop my work. Henry VIII was outraged. Uh, this negotiator went back to the king and told him what Tyndale had said. And the negotiator said, I find Tyndale always singing one note. His note was that the people who speak English must have a Bible in their language that they can understand. Well, just like our Lord was betrayed by someone close to him, by Judas, eventually William Tyndale was betrayed by someone that he thought was a friend. And I've told you earlier at the beginning of the sermon about his trial and some of the things he was accused of. As you can imagine, Tyndale was condemned and he was sentenced to death. On October 6, 1536, William Tyndale is brought out of the castle where he's been held a prisoner for these last months. There's a large crowd that is assembled, and they uh, begin to move to make space so that Tyndale can be brought to his death. As the crowd parts, you begin to see uh, this big circular platform and this thing that looks very much like a cross. And hanging from the top of the central beam is this strong iron chain. And down around it are these uh, bundles of brushwood and straw and logs. They're bundled and piled up at the foot of this cross. And so these, uh, the, the onlookers, the spectators, they move out of the way. Tyndale is brought to this cross. His feet are bound at the bottom, and this iron chain is wrapped around his neck, and he's held tightly to this cross. And so the, the executioner is standing there. They're waiting on the word of, of the officials that Tyndale will die. Well, they reposition all of the bundles of sticks and wood and all this kind of stuff, and then they sprinkle in gunpowder all throughout uh, the 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 flame, the straw and everything that are at his feet. And so as soon as the word is given, uh, they're, they're ready to execute Tyndale. But before they do, he offers up this prayer. He screams loudly for the whole crowd to hear, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. Even as he approaches death, he's praying that King Henry, Henry VIII would, yes, his eyes would be open to salvation, but ultimately that his eyes would be open to see the need for English-speaking people to have an English Bible. And so when uh, the signal is given, the chain is tightened, and William Tyndale is strangled to death. But that's not enough. And so they take a torch, and they throw it there into the straw and the brush, and it explodes. And the corpse of William Tyndale is, uh, is exploded right there before their eyes. What's left hangs there from the beams until it falls into the raging fire and Tyndale dies. You need to understand that was the price that it took to get this English Bible in your hands. Was it worth it? If we have a more sure word, a more trustworthy word, 
Something that's more trustworthy than all of our experiences, more trustworthy than all of our intuitions, then what do we do? Peter tells us we would do well, verse 19, to pay attention. We have this trustworthy word. We would do well to pay attention. Pay attention to what? Well, Peter's already said earlier in the letter that God has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Granted to us all things through the knowledge of Christ. How do we get that? It's through His Word. As Pastor Laramie taught this morning in Sunday school that God has given us through the Bible all that we need to know Christ in salvation, all that we need to trust Him perfectly, all that we need in God's Word to obey Him perfectly. God has given us a more sure word. Charles Spurgeon in his day uh, was speaking to his congregation and said there's more dust, there's enough dust on many of our Bibles to write damnation across our souls. We've received an English Bible at a great cost and we do so little with it. We don't take time to read it on our own. We don't take time to gather with God's people to study His Word. Do you know God's Word better than you know what's going on in college football or in the World Series or what's going on in Washington politics? We would do well to pay attention to God's Word. Verse 19, as to a lamp shining in a dark place. As we were reminded once again that God's Word is sufficient even for the darkness of this world. The light of the Gospel needs to go forth. And you need to understand Friend, if you're here this morning and you know you're not a Christian, you need to know that we here at Ramah are praying that the Lord will save you. That the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ will shine into your heart even this day. That you will see the glory of Jesus Christ and that you will repent and believe the gospel. And if you need help in understanding what does it mean to follow after Christ, don't leave here today. We want to speak with you about trusting Jesus Christ alone for salvation. But we would do well to pay attention to God's Word as to a lamp shining in a dark place. What does the psalm say? Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. How long do we need the sufficient word? How long do we reject this craving that we have for experiences and for signs and intuitions? How long? Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. This is clearly an allusion to the return of Jesus Christ. Exactly what Peter has been preaching about. Exactly what these scoffers have been ridiculing. We need God's sufficient, trustworthy Word until the day we see Him face to face. Did you notice this morning the emphasis on the return of Christ in our songs we sang? And how great thou art when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation. We look forward to the return of Christ. On that day when freed from sinning, we sang at the end of Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. There was a strong emphasis on the fact that Christ will return. And when we see Christ face to face, we'll no longer need the trustworthy, sufficient Word because we will see the living Word face to face. We will experience His presence for all of eternity. There will be a day when we will no longer need the Scriptures because we will be with the living Word. But until then, God's Word is enough. You need to understand that. God's Word is enough for your lost family members. Those who reject the Gospel and that you're praying for and you're wondering, is there some other way that I can show them their need of a Savior? God's Word is enough. God's Word is enough for your marriage and for your family. God's Word is enough for our church, for our worship, for our evangelism, for our counseling, for our missions, for everything that we do. God's Word is enough. 
William Tyndale was convinced that the power of God alone could change the heart of both kings and plowboys. And so he translated the more certain word to which we would do well to pay attention.